Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good morning, Great Church. I don't have a clicker, brothers. Hoped it would be up here, but it is not. So if I missed it somewhere, somebody let me know. Good morning, everybody. It is super good to see you. Welcome to the Great Church. Yeah, glad you're here. Uh, as Brother Rooster mentioned, we do have a large number away at our family retreat. It wasn't just yesterday, it's today too. Uh, and uh, they'll be coming home this afternoon sometime, Lord willing. So if you think about remembering them in your prayers uh, for safety, please do. Uh, Keisha and I were able to go yesterday and spend some time with them, which was fantastic and always is. And so if in the future, as much as I'd hate to see our numbers diminished here on Sunday morning when it's for such a good purpose like that and everybody's worshiping there at the retreat, if you haven't had the opportunity to attend our family retreat one year, I wish that you would. Thank you, Brother Dwayne. I uh, wish that you would. It, it is a great opportunity for you not only to have some a few days of really intensive look at some subject related to the Word of God, but also uh, it's a great relationship developing opportunity to grow closer to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we have one more Sunday this month in the month of October, which happens to be a fifth Sunday. That's next week. So remember, that's our opportunity to give uh, and all of the giving that goes, goes towards local and domestic benevolence and missions, things that bless this community and this state and this area and this country. And it's a very important thing, uh, trying to make sure that even as we attempt to do good work all across the world, we're not forgetting that our mission field starts right here at home first. And so please keep that in mind. It's interesting, you know, on our fifth Sundays, we tend to have uh, special emphases uh, Sundays or, or lessons or worship services, and that's what this one will be. And so it's interesting that, that this is going to be a special emphasis on giving, on uh, the, the collections that we take up every Lord's Day, and an opportunity for us to focus on that in kind of a special way. And so I hope that you'll be able to be with us next week for that. And uh, also, that means it will be a full bilingual service from beginning to end, which is always extremely exciting and enjoyable to me. And so all of us will stay in here together uh, after the Lord's Supper, Spanish speakers, English speakers, and we'll go back and forth between the two languages. As our marquee says out front, dos idiomas, una familia, two languages, one family. And uh, that's what we are trying to be in the name of Jesus here, and our fifth Sundays are a great expression of that. So if you haven't been to one of our full bilingual services yet, next Sunday morning is your opportunity. If you have, I know you're already excited and looking forward to it. When you come together, the church at worship, that has been our series this month uh, as we've thought about who we are as the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so today we are continuing this series and we're focusing on the five acts of worship. Now, if you have been around churches of Christ for very long, this is a topic that already is very familiar to you. 
If you have not been, then maybe this is something that's new. What on earth are you talking about, the five acts of worship? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to let you know what, what we mean by that before this sermon is done. But first of all, just this quote from A.W. Tozer. What is worship, he asks. Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner uh, a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonishing wonder and overpowering love and the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty, which philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father, which art in heaven. Should be art in the King James. But for those that don't speak King James English, R translates that into our language anyway. And so uh, that's a great quote. And it kind of summarizes what we've talked about in the previous lessons of this series. Now, our uh, young kids and those of us who haven't forgotten everything that a fifth grader knows. Uh, sometimes in the past we're taught uh, how to investigate any question or any issue or any uh, matter of uh, inquiry in life. You got the, the five W's and uh, an H, right? The five W's and an H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how, right? So if you want to understand a subject, you ask the five W's and an H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And, and we've been kind of doing that in this series. We haven't directly talked about those five W's and an H, but we have in this series talked about who it is that we worship. We've talked about why it is that we worship. We've talked about how we worship as far as our hearts are concerned, our minds and our intentions and our attitudes are concerned. Today we talk about what in the sense of what we do when we come together to worship. All right? So that's what we mean when we're talking about the five acts of worship, what we do when we come together. But before we get into that, first of all, I want to talk about personal versus assembled worship. Because to get at one of the primary passages in the New Testament that speaks to the heart of the worshiper, how we should worship, and, and even what we should do when we worship, we've got to get into the book of Matthew chapter 6. And in order to deal with that passage in a fair way, we need to talk about both personal and assembled worship, all right? So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Matthew chapter 6, page 853 in the Pew Bible, if you're following along there. And we're going to read verses 1 through 18, and I'm going to talk about just very briefly some of the things that Jesus teaches us. Now, Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is some of the, the central, most important teachings that Jesus gave during his earthly ministry. So this is super, super important stuff. All right? So Matthew 6, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, our Lord says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed or you give or you make your offering, donation, whatever your different translation says, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now think about that. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now we realize that that's a it's an impossibility, you know, but the point is Jesus uses hyperbole repeatedly throughout the Sermon on the Mount. 
And if you're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, really get right down to the bottom line of what Jesus means, you've got to understand he uses hyperbole regularly. And that was a, that was a, Jewish, way of, a Jewish way of teaching that the rabbis used very regularly. It is an intended exaggeration that is designed to get you out of the drone of just listening to a lecture and actually saying, wait, what does that mean? That's the purpose of this. And so when you hear Jesus say, don't let your, uh, your left hand know what your right hand is doing, you're supposed to stop and get out of that sort of zone, that daze that you're in sometimes when you listen to somebody teach, and you're supposed to say, how can I, how can I give in such a way that my, my left hand doesn't even know what my right hand is doing? Well, you can't. But, but the point is that you are doing this in such a way that your intention is that this is an offering to God. This is for God to see. And this is for nobody else to see. And so when we worship together on Lord's Day and the collection tray comes around, and I know some people give online now, and maybe not everybody uses the collection plate, but most of us still, at least part of the time, give something in the collection uh, tray when it comes around on Sunday. It's an act of worship. We're going to talk about that in greater detail, Lord willing, next Sunday in our special emphasis. So I don't intend to talk a lot about that this morning or this evening. But when we do that, we need to think about the fact that I, I'm not putting something in that tray so that the person next to me down the road is going to see that big stack of bills that I put in there. If I'm putting a big stack of bills in the tray and I look down the aisle and I wink at the person next to me in line, well, that's all the reward I get. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's about your intentions. It's about your purposes. It's about your heart. Make sure you're giving to God, for God to see, and not for anybody else. Verse 5, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues. That would be standing in church, standing up here at the pulpit or the lectern. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. Same principle here, verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Now we see in this passage here, it's implied also in what we read previously about giving or our charitable deeds or the collections or whatever. We see it even more clearly here when Jesus talks about prayer. There is a public aspect of prayer. And, and don't understand Jesus to say that it's wrong for a brother to get up here and lead prayer, as Brother Aubrey just did a few moments ago. And the way that Brother Aubrey led us in prayer is the way that all of our brothers regularly do, as far as I can tell, is in keeping with this teaching. It's perfectly right. He didn't get up here to pray so that you would think that he's the most spiritual man in this congregation. I know Brother Aubrey very well. And what he prayed was from his heart, leading us so that we might together as one congregation join him in these words and offer them as a congregation together to God in heaven. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing that we do when we come together. But what Jesus is saying is, is that there's got to be a personal and private aspect of your prayer life. Don't pray so that people will think you're pious. Pray to God because you want to talk to God. Because it is within you spiritually to want to have a relationship with God and to interact with Him in your communication. And so Jesus says, you know, really the heart of your prayer life 
It's important that we pray together in public worship, but the heart of your prayer life, the seed, the bud from which the flower of your prayer life grows has got to be what you do at home when nobody is watching but God. You see that? So then Jesus gives us the model prayer. I want to say this also. There's, there, we've had brothers and sisters in the past who have said, well, you can't pray the Lord's Prayer. It's a model there. It teaches you, but don't you dare say those words in your prayer life because that would be vain repetition. I understand what they mean when they say that. And I'm not trying to be hard on folks, but they're misunderstanding the context. Jesus is not telling you that there are any set of words that you cannot say in your prayers. You can pray a psalm if you want to. You can pray the Lord's Prayer if you want to. Every last word of it, even kingdom come. Because though Colossians 1.13 tells us that we have been translated into the kingdom of, of God's beloved Son, we are in the kingdom in the church, there is still a further fulfillment of the kingdom promise that is yet to come. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 15 say that when Jesus comes again and judgment day occurs, then he will hand the kingdom over to the Father so that God will be all in all? The heavenly kingdom. Paul says, uh, speaking of his death and of his future, he says that Jesus will receive, will, future tense, receive him into the heavenly kingdom. Have we been received yet into the heavenly kingdom? Not unless you're in heaven. You see? So yes, we're in the kingdom. We're already in the kingdom, but we're not yet in the kingdom in the fullest sense of that. And so when someone says, don't pray thy kingdom come because it's come, again, I understand where they're coming from, but they're misunderstanding this passage's place in the whole biblical context. All right? So you can pray this whole prayer. I regularly do. I use it as kind of the start of my prayers in, in most cases. I'll pray through the Lord's Prayer as, as the introduction to my prayer, and then I will proceed to say whatever is on my heart or whatever's on my written prayer list, if that's what I'm praying to at that time. So listen, he says uh, in verse 9, and this, pray in this manner, therefore, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in other words, start with praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Submit yourself to God's will and ask that his will will be done on earth, just as fully as it is presently being done in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us. You're asking God to give you the things you need in life, knowing that that's where they come from. And, as, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You're asking for forgiveness of your sins. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Some passages just say deliver us from evil, but the structure of the Greek in this passage is, it should rightly be translated the evil one because it is specific the Greek is there. And so it's asked, we're asking God to deliver us from and protect us from Satan specifically. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying deliver us from evil altogether. But where does evil come from? <laughs> so if you're, if you're asking to be delivered or protected from the evil one, well, then you're asking to be protected from the stuff that he does or that he influences other people to do, which is evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then we have this note. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's a stern warning about just how important it is we'd be willing to forgive. Picking up with verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to, to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you 
openly. When you fast, brothers and sisters, and, and notice here, sometimes people will say that there is no commandment in Scripture requiring Christians to fast. That, that's debatable. I guess it depends on how you understand things. But Jesus just words this as if it's an understanding. He just says, when you fast. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, he says, when you fast, this is what you ought to do. Again, this sermon is not about fasting. And so I'm not going to go into that in detail, but we think of fasting as abstaining from food, and that's kind of the base foundation principle of what fasting is. But fasting can be choosing to sacrifice any of the pleasures in life, not simply for asceticism's sake. In other words, it's not about punishing the body or suffering or any of that sort of thing. It is excluding something pleasurable that might distract you from a full attention focus on God so that you can give that time that you would otherwise be spending on making yourself happy to specifically and exclusively make God happy. And that's what fasting is. And it's an act of worship, by the way. But it's not something that we would call corporate worship. Although there are times when the elders might call the church to fast. We observed a fast just a couple of weeks ago. The governor asked the residents of the state of Tennessee to spend a day praying and fasting for God to guide and bless this state. And our elders, respecting Romans 13, respecting the authorities that God has set up in this land, uh, called the church to obey that, uh, that request from the government. And, and I think we all did. And I don't tell me if you didn't, okay? Because I'm just going to assume we all did it as we were asked to do. And so that was kind of a corporate act of worship that we didn't necessarily do together, except we came together to break that fast in that evening. It was a beautiful thing, all right? And so Jesus made it clear in this context. His followers ought to offer private worship to God. If you're going to learn how, you brothers, if you're going to learn how to lead a prayer in the assembly, it needs to be something that you have worked out, that you have practiced, that, that is a part of your life at home in your prayer closet. Now, you don't literally have to have a closet, but you know what the passage means. When you're at home by yourself, that's where you learn to pray. And you come into the assembly, if you're going to lead a prayer, lead in that way, as if it's just a conversation with God. Don't use big words that you don't use in your ordinary language. If you use them in your ordinary daily life, fine, use them here too. But don't come here and show off how spiritual you are. Jesus says that's not what this is about. You're just leading the brothers and sisters in a prayer when you do that. You know, and he talks about your giving in the same way. He talks about fasting in the same So the point is, we ought to be people who worship God every day. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to make an application of this passage and say that sometime between uh, on Monday or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday, the days that we don't normally assemble together, at some point in time in your week, there needs to be acts of worship that you offer to God by yourself. And your private devotions to God, that should be where you are learning to worship, where you are growing as a worshiper, where you are developing this, this father and son, father and daughter intimacy with your God that is going to enable you to come into the assembly and be someone who contributes to a beautiful and wonderful and fulfilling worship service. I'm not saying that you're lost or Jesus is mad at you or whatever if you've never understood this principle, but if you never have understood it, put it into practice, I beg you, this week. And just see how it starts to transform your mentality about what we do together when we come together on the first day of the week. All right? So private worship. There are more, listen, there are more than five acts that can be called worship. There are far more than five acts that can be called 
worship. Fasting is worship. We don't come together and have a five-minute fast, you know. Uh, that's just, you understand what I'm saying. It, it's, it's, a more, it's a bigger, more comprehensive thing. It's a more personal thing. It's not something that can be limited to a corporate or assembled worship service of God's people. Hey, listen, hear me out here. One of the things that uh, was a real controversy, but nevertheless is in the Bible, David danced before the Lord. He worshiped God in a celebratory dance. God loved it. Michael, his first wife, did not. Go read the context. She didn't like it a bit. And God punished her for judging David's worship. But I, I want you to understand that Dancing before the Lord in worship is not something that belongs in, in the church assembly. You, if you want in the privacy of your house to dance before the Lord, by all means, dance before the Lord. You can worship God maybe in a thousand ways in your private life. Things that are just, you just feel like the way that you want to glorify God and express your adoration to Him and be thankful to Him. You, you can maybe, there's maybe a thousand ways that you can do that in your own life. So when we talk about the five acts of worship, don't get the idea that I think some folks have got that there are only five ways that you can worship God. And if you're doing something besides these five things in your own private worship life that somehow you're sinning. That's not true. And that's not a sound uh, interpretation of God's word. Are you following me? I hope you're following me because this is so super important. I can't stress it enough, but I don't have time to stress it again. Personal worship is a lot more important to your whole spirituality than most people realize, I think. But when we talk about the five acts of worship, we mean the acts of assembled or church worship. You remember the word ecclesia, the Greek word translated church primarily means assembly. And so the church is all about the assembly. That's a central uh, aspect of who we are. If you are saved, you've been added to the church, Acts 2.47. And if you are part of the church, you're part of the assembly. That means it's just a given that on the Lord's day, you're going to get up and you're going to wash up and you're going to get dressed however you dress, as long as it's modest. You don't have to dress up. I wear a tie because I like to, but I don't have to. The elders haven't even told me that I have to. Okay, one of our elders is not. All right, so there's your example. But you dress modestly. You dress in a way that expresses your respect for God, and you come into the assembly to worship. If you are a Christian, that's what you do, okay? These five acts of worship are, are these acts that we do when we assemble together as the church, and they are the five things that are clearly and without argument specifically mentioned in the New Testament. And so Jesus made it clear that his followers ought to offer private worship to God. Jesus also made it clear his followers ought to assemble for perfect, for public worship as well. Now at this point in time, probably a lot of people will be thinking, oh yeah, that's Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Yeah, that's right. I've mentioned that passage earlier in this series. If you're familiar with Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, good. You know what I'm talking about. And if you're not familiar with Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, make note of it get familiar with it. Uh, but what I'm talking about for the rest of the lesson this morning is specifically what Jesus has said. In the ESV, if you read through the Gospels, there are 20 times, 20 times that Jesus specifically says to those around him, follow me, follow me. A Christian is a Christian, a follower of Christ. 
One who is recognized in Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the true King and Lord, and, and has decided that it is the right thing for me to do to bow the knee to Jesus, to recognize Him for who He is, the great and master teacher. And I, it's the, the right way for me to be a human being and relate to my God is to follow Jesus as my leader. You know, life, if you're living it in the right way, is a game of follow the leader with very high stakes. That's what it is. And when we talk about following Jesus, when Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't just mean do what I say. Although that's a part of it. You're not a follower of Jesus if you willfully disobey his commandments. If you're a follower of Jesus and he commands you something, well, you're going to make a good effort to obey that commandment, right? But it's not just that. We're called to imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. And that's what Jesus means when he says, follow me. He's, he's teaching us that we need to have our mindset transformed by observation of him, by listening to him, by a comprehensive uh, study of him so that our actions will then change so that they look like him. And that means that we obey the things he says, but it also means that to the extent it's possible for us, we try to do what he does. We try to imitate him. Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And brothers and sisters, that is the point. What God wants is for you and for me to be just like Jesus. Because he is the only perfect expression that has yet existed of what a human being made in the likeness of Almighty God ought to be. Now, if we do follow him, brothers and sisters, Scripture promises us on resurrection day, we will be made like him. He won't be the only perfect human being anymore. Everyone who follows him to the end of this life or to his second coming, whichever comes first, will be made a perfect expression of humanity just like he is. We're not that now. We're not that yet. But we're called to do our best to move continually in that direction. And so whatever it is that I read in the Gospels about that Jesus did, I'm, I'm going to do. And whatever uh, sense is appropriate, I'm going to do that. And so, well, here's the point. Jesus always went to church. Jesus always went to church. That's what Jesus did. So if I'm imitating Jesus, that's what I'm going to do. We read in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it got cut off there a little bit, but he came to Nazareth, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And note, as was his custom, this was his manner of life. This was his habit. Ain't nothing wrong with a good habit, brothers and sisters. <laughs> What's bad are bad habits. You, you don't break a habit, you replace a habit, right? So fill your life full of good habits, and there won't be so much room for bad habits. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. He went to church, synagogue, that's the Jewish church before the establishment of the church of our Lord after his death, burial, and resurrection. So he went to church every single week and he participated to the extent that it was appropriate for him to do. That's what Jesus does. That's what he did in his earthly ministry. And if we're following him, that's what we're going to do. Now we know that things have changed since then. From synagogue to church, same thing, different covenant, we're doing the same thing. 
They did it on the Sabbath day as part of the Old Testament system, the law of Moses. That's been fulfilled by Jesus. And so now we do it on the day that that was finally fulfilled, when, when he was resurrected from the dead on the first day of the week. So we assemble on Sunday, on the first day of the week, now that we're under the New Testament system. And, and there's another point that I want to focus on today. And that is that we have an obligation, difficult as it may be sometimes, to preserve our unity when we do come together on the first day of the week to worship God. You ever heard the term worship wars? Well, we've been living in the era of the worship wars now for at least a couple of decades, maybe a few decades. And, and you might recognize what I'm talking about when I say, uh, maybe if somebody asks you, well, do y'all offer traditional worship or contemporary praise? <laughs> that's, that's the worship wars. You know, it's, it's the wars that are going on in, in the culture of churches around us where people are wrestling with whether they should continue to worship the way that their forefathers have done in most cases for many, many years or whether they need to, to, to turn worships into a seeker-friendly sort of experience and, and develop a worship service that, that is more familiar to the mindset of people in the world today. And so, well, let's offer music that sounds like the music people are listening to on the radio. Uh, let's make sure that speakers speak the way that public speakers, maybe motivational speakers or politicians speak today. Uh, let's maybe be PC about it, maybe not, depending upon where you are. All right, those are the worship wars where these churches are having to wrestle with these decisions. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 1.10. Brother Matt read that well just a few minutes ago, but listen. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Listen to that. That all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you. How many divisions is it okay to have in the church? Zero. Zero but that you be united. How should we be united? In the same mind and in the same judgment. In the same mindset and in the same judgment of what we decide is right and wrong. Comprehensive unity. Not just unity and diversity. As I've talked about this in past time preaching on racism and other issues. It's not, we're not looking for unity and diversity. We're looking for diversity that is in unity. Oneness in Christ. That's what Jesus is leading us to seek. And well, the way that we worship God when we come together is a huge factor in whether or not we're going to be able to maintain that. And so we have these five acts of worship that are specifically mentioned in the New Testament. And you may ask, why do the churches, at least most of the churches of Christ, why do we limit ourselves? Why do we put brackets around these five things and refuse to have other acts of worship in our, in our assemblies? Why don't we have folks get up and dance before the Lord? You know, why don't we have uh, soloists uh, singing songs to entertain us? Why don't we have a big, you know, rock band up here or even a piano? Why don't we do any of those things together when we come together to worship God? Well, listen, I want you to understand very clearly 
It is not because we are ascending the steps to the throne of Christ and usurping his throne to pronounce judgment on those people that do things that we don't do. That is not our right and it is not our place and it is not sound, faithful Christianity following in the footsteps of Jesus to do that. It's not because we're deciding who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. That's Jesus' job. And on judgment day, my Lord can accept whatever he wants to accept. And he will reject whatever it is he wants to reject. You should read the Declaration and Address written primarily by Thomas Campbell in 1809 if you've never done so. It's not Bible. But it is the words of a man who was steeped in Scripture and loved the Lord. One of the early restoration preachers uh, in our heritage in Churches of Christ. The Declaration and Address Thomas Campbell. Look it up. You can find it for free in PDF form and read it online. I tell you what, I have never in my life read a better summary of how we are to understand how Scripture authorizes, how it sets boundaries around us, specifically in the interest of being simply Christians with no prefixes, no suffixes, who are able to have a worship service together that we can be unified about. Listen, any time, any kind of activity of worship that is not one of these five acts that is specifically mentioned has been introduced into a Christian assembly, it has rocked that church and divided it right down the middle. Whatever you want to do, as an act of worship to God in your private life, if it doesn't violate a commandment of God, you do. But when you come together with the church, do not do anything that you cannot point to the Bible and say, this I see is clearly called for by God. Book, chapter, and verse. Because if you introduce a single practice into the assemblies of the saints for which you do not have a thus saith the Lord, somebody's conscience is going to have a problem with it. And then what do you have? Unity? In the same mind? And in the same judgment? Or do you have contention between brothers and sisters in Christ? And potential division in the church? You know the answer to the question. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we do what we do. And I'm very proud to say, in the right way of saying I'm proud, not the wrong. I'm proud to say that the worship we offer to God as Laverne Church of Christ every time we come together on the Lord's Day or any other time is worship that I know every Bible believer in the world can participate in with a clean conscience. Amen? And therefore, if there is division in the church with regard to some aspect of the worship wars, it ain't our fault. It ain't our fault. Does that make sense? 
Now, I don't have any more time this morning to talk about these things. And so this evening at 6 p.m., Lord willing, I'm going to spend some time with each one of these five acts of worship. We're going to look at these passages, at least one passage for each one of these acts. We're going to talk about uh, what, what they mean and how they fit into a worship service and how each individual worshiper should think about these five acts as we come together. And so I sure hope that you'll be able to be with us this evening at 6 p.m. And if you can't be... Oh, isn't it a blessing that we live in a day and age where these lessons are getting streamed out there on YouTube and on Facebook? So if you happen to have to miss a worship service sometime, well, you can get right out there online and you can listen to it on, on Sunday evening or Monday or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday as part of your private personal worship service to God at home in the secret place. And God, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. Isn't he beautiful? I love our Lord so much. This morning, if you are not a baptized believer in the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, well, here's your opportunity. If you're old enough to understand what sin is and you know that you're a sinner and you haven't yet named the name of Jesus and obeyed the commandment to turn from sins and you haven't yet been washed in his blood in the waters of baptism, the water is ready, the water is warm, we have garments prepared today. You can put Jesus on as your Lord and this morning, if you're a baptized believer that needs the prayers of the church, front pews are open. Don't delay. Come as together we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.